seated. Thanks for being here this morning. Before we jump back into, uh, back into Matthew, I just want to talk about baptism. We baptize as a tank here, and we have people that are, are baptizing. What's happening when, that, when we do that is they're openly declaring that they're following Jesus. Like, baptism doesn't save you, but baptism is, I would say, is the first step of obedience. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've never been baptized, that's the first thing that you need to do. That's the first step of obedience is publicly acknowledging uh, Jesus. And so I know in, in a room this size, there are probably a number of you in here that uh, we've talked about it before. Maybe you've been coming here for a while and you just continue to have excuses or reasons as to why you don't do it. And I just want to challenge you. Like that is the, the first step of obedience. People will ask me uh, all the time, man, I want to know what God wants for my life. What's God's will for my life? I want him to teach me something new. Well, why would God give you something new if you haven't already been obedient with the things he's already told you to do? And so that's that first step of obedience. And, and maybe you got baptized when you were a kid. If, if that's your story, that was me. When I was one or two years old, my parents had me uh, sprinkled in the, the Catholic church. And, and I, don't, I don't regret that they did that. I had no idea what was happening. Uh, but I, I don't regret that they did that. That was something they did for them that was not about me. And when I made the decision to follow Jesus as a 17-year-old, I knew that even though I had been sprinkled as a child, that that wasn't a declaration that I was following Jesus. And so this became something different. And so maybe that's your story where you go, well, man, I was baptized when I was a baby. I'm good. Like baptism comes after we make the decision to follow Jesus. It's a sign of declaration and identification. And so I really want to challenge you, whatever like you may be struggling with, if you've never had the opportunity before, this is for you. If you have and you've just been resistant to it, I just want to challenge you to let the Holy Spirit kind of speak to you and speak through that. And then this morning when we leave at the welcome desk, uh, our welcome team there can help get you signed up to get baptized next weekend. Uh, and if you have questions, we'll answer your questions. Uh, we want to make sure that you have all the information you need so that you can make this step. It's a day of celebrating. It's one of my favorite services that we have all year. Uh, I love to watch people openly declare that they're following Jesus. And I want to make sure that you know about it and that you have the opportunity to do it. And if you've been resistant to it, I just want to challenge you uh, to overcome that barrier and to do this anyway. It's the first sign of, of living in obedience to Jesus. And that's what disciples do. Disciples obey even before the question is asked. So Matthew chapter 15. Uh, do you have any Nintendo fans in here? Anybody play the old NES? Like a few? Yeah, a bunch of us. Uh, my favorite game, I think, was Mike Tyson Punch-Out!, I recently learned they can't call it that anymore because of his punching people out outside of the ring. So uh, it became a little bit of a controversial title. So it's just punch out. But Mike Tyson, punch out, Tecmo Bowl. You could be like Bo Jackson, who is unstoppable. Uh, some of you guys in here I know know the, the cheat code to Contra to get like unlimited lives. And, uh, but when we think about Nintendo, what do you think about? You think about a gaming system. Like that's the, the, the point of connection that we make. But Nintendo actually started in 1889. Obviously, it didn't start as a gaming system company. It started as a trading card company. But along the way, there was a change. There had to be a shift. They, they had to grow and develop to the point where they changed the way they did business. They changed what they did. And those changes weren't always easy, but those changes were necessary. Another company I think of is uh, American Express. If you have an American Express card uh, like I do, you immediately make the connection with one of the number one credit card companies in maybe in the in the world today but that's not where they started they started in 1850 as a delivery service much like the the pony express fun fact about um, uh, american express two of their founders 
where a guy named, was one guy named Henry Wells and another guy named William Fargo. Anybody want to guess who they are? Like Wells Fargo. So they started, they were part of starting uh, American Express. PayPal's another company. They started as a cryptology company, but today we know them as the default online payment system of, of millions of, of people. Like if you ask someone, do you have a PayPal account? Like the under, that's like a rhetorical question. Of course you have a PayPal account. But that's not where they started. They started as something different, but along the way, change became necessary. And for every one of these companies, they made change that, that wasn't necessarily easy, but change that was necessary. The president of PayPal said at one point that they had multiple meetings basically asking the question, do we want to continue down this path of change or, do we, or do, we, do we want to just mail the whole thing in? Like change was necessary, but change was not necessarily easy. And as we continue where we are in Matthew chapter 15, I want you to keep in mind that Jesus is bringing change. Like, like for the disciples, he's raising them up to eventually be the leaders that would, that would change the world to send his mission through them. But in order to do that, he had to make some significant changes in not only the way they lived and the way they acted, but what they believed and how they saw the gospel and who they saw included in the gospel. Because for the disciples and all first century Jews and even the Jews that preceded them, they very much viewed the gospel and the coming of the Messiah as specific only to them. Like the Messiah would come, they believed he was promised, but he was coming to the Jewish people and that was it. He was not coming to save the rest of the world. When God established a covenant relationship with the nation of Israel, the world be, be, began to be divided by Jew and Gentile. You were either a part of the nation of Israel, you were a Jew, or you were everybody else, you were a Gentile. The vast majority of us in here were part of that Gentile group. But there were divisions that existed between those, those two groups of people. Some of it you can understand, like if you're a Gentile, you got the Jews over here going, hey, well, we're God's chosen people. Uh, we're special. God loves us more than he loves you. Like you can see where maybe the Gentiles would have a problem with that. Like if you've ever been in a class where you perceive the teacher to have a favorite, we would always call them the teacher's pet. And that wasn't a term of, of affection. That was like a slam. Or if you grew up in a home where your mom or dad had a favorite child, everybody kind of disdained the one that they, you perceived lo was loved the most. So the Gentiles had tension toward the Jews, but then the Jewish people had some dividing lines that existed, some that, that God instituted. Like God said things like there were certain things that they, that they could eat, certain things they couldn't eat, certain things they couldn't touch. And so God said, you can't touch these things, but you also, if you touch them, you're unclean. So if you touch anything or anyone that is deemed ceremonially unclean, then you're unclean. So for that reason, the Jews very much had this, this posture because of the diet that the Gentiles had that was not similar to what God gave to them. There, were, there was a dividing line that existed because of that. There were known hostilities that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. And from the perspective of the disciples, they were there from their uh, from their vantage point, it was like, man, the Messiah is coming to reach the Jews and who really cares about the rest of the world? And so Jesus is having to change that. He's having to confront that. He's having to, he's having to expose that unbelief so that he can build up truth in them. And we see it as we move into this section of Matthew chapter 15, as Jesus takes the disciples outside of a Jewish region and brings them into Gentile territory. In Matthew 15, verse 21, it says, then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So we've got a slide up here uh, for you. That, that small uh, circle of water that's kind of to the upper part of the middle, that's the Sea of Galilee. Most of the times when we've shown the map, 
Jesus has been right in that region. But he took them all the way up into Tyre and Sidon, which was far outside of Jewish territory and deep into Gentile, into a Gentile area that the disciples would have not been excited to be at all. Tyre and Sidon was a longstanding enemy of the nation of Israel. They were actually part of the original promised land. So when God promised the nation of Israel Canaan and said, go in and take possession of it, I've given it to you. That was part of what God had promised them. But the Jews conquered as much as they felt like conquering. And they're like, yeah, we're good. This is enough. Like, we don't have to worry about that. And so God allowed tension, great tension to exist between these two regions as a constant reminder to the Jews of what belonged to them, but, but of what they failed to take. And so this group of, of people, this territory would not just have been someone that the, these disciples and the Jews didn't like. This would have been someone that they disdained. So it's, it's football season. There's a game Thursday night, but it really starts today. Like the, the football season starts today. Uh, any, uh, um, what are they, Washington football team fans in here? I want to call them the Redskins, but any Washington football, okay, a few of you, I'm so sorry. Um, but so, the, but so the, the Washington football team, man, you guys don't like the Eagles, right? You certainly don't like the Giants, but there's a special place in hell for the Cowboys, isn't it? Like, wouldn't you agree with that? Like, my wife and my son are big Packers fans, and so they love, they love Green Bay. They don't like the Lions. They don't like the Vikings, but they have a special level of hatred for the Bears. Like, they just cannot stand the Bears. And so for the disciples, there are areas where if Jesus is like, hey, we're going to reach these people over here, they're like, yeah, not really a huge fan of them, but, I, you know, this whole, like, love everybody, love your neighbors yourself, okay, like, I get it. We could maybe be okay with that. But Jesus says, no, let's go to the place with an enemy that you have great disdain for. Let's start there. Let, let, let's bring the message of the gospel there because if, you could, if he knew, Jesus knew if he could get them on board with, read, with reaching people that they had that level of disdain for, then everything in between would become much easier for them to embrace and for them to believe. And so Jesus takes them into this area. And in verse 22, it says, a Gentile woman who lived there came to him pleading, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is possessed by a demon that torments her severely. Now, when you walk through the rest of, the, of Matthew chapter 15, you're going to know it's going to feel like deja vu. You're going to see a lot of stories that we've seen before, a lot of stories that we've talked about. There was a man who, who Jesus healed his son, very similar situation. And you go, well, why is this same situation being told all over again? The verses that come right after this are when Jesus fed the 4,000. Well, we just talked a couple of weeks ago about when Jesus fed the 5,000. So why is Matthew telling this same story all over again? Like, what's the point? Well, the point is when we, when we covered them before, Jesus was dealing with the Jews. This was about announcing the kingdom to the Jewish people. So the feeding of the 5,000 was among the Jewish community. The healings that he did were among the Jewish community. And now Jesus is going to perform the exact same miracles or very similar miracles, but now he's going to do it in a Gentile region to openly declare to, to the disciples that the message of the gospel, the offer of the kingdom, is no longer just for the Jews. The offer of the kingdom is now for the entire world, is now for the Gentiles as well. And so this Gentile woman comes to him and says, have mercy. She calls him son of David. Son of David was a known title of the Messiah. So from the moment she encounters him, she openly declares that she believes that he is the one that is promised. He is the, uh, the Messiah. 
Verse 23, it says, but Jesus gave her no reply, not even a word, which that can feel a little um, like unnecessary. Like why would Jesus not speak to her? Uh, there's a couple of, of things that could have been going on here. One is cultural. Men didn't speak to women in public in this culture, and rabbis especially did not speak to women. In fact, rabbis would not even speak to their own wives in public. So Jesus, the rabbi, it could have been that he was a rabbi and he wasn't speaking, or it could have been that he wanted to see how the rest of the story would play out because ultimately what's happening here is she's going to be the beneficiary of it, but it's really not about her. It's about the disciples. So it says, then his disciples urged him to send her away. Tell her to go away, they said. She is bothering us with all her begging. Now, the reality is the begging wasn't the problem. Who was begging is, is what the problem was. They were around begging all the time. That was part of the, the first century culture they lived in. But now something that they would have tolerated every day, now all of a sudden they're intolerant to it. It has nothing to do with the fact that she's begging. It has everything to do with the fact that she is a Gentile. In fact, their attitude likely would have been just go ahead and let her die. Like it'd be one less Gentile in the world. So then in verse 24, it says, Then Jesus said to the woman, I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. If you remember back in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus sent the 12 out, he divided them up in twos and he sent them out. And what did he say to them? He said, Go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He said that this is an Israel-specific conversation right now. So when Jesus says to this woman, I was sent to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel, the disciples who don't like that they're here anyway and don't like the, the encounter they're having with this woman, at this point, they're likely cheering. Like this is the point where they're amening Jesus. Like, yes, Jesus, you tell her what's true. You tell her what's up. That this isn't about you. This isn't for you. This is about the, the nation of Israel. But Jesus is setting them up. Like Jesus, as he did often, was not saying this for his own benefit. He wasn't trying to enlighten himself. He wasn't even trying to enlighten this woman. He was saying this for the benefit of the disciples. Verse 25, it says, but she came and worshiped him, pleading again, Lord, help me. So she worships him. She's bowed down. She's humbly acknowledging his power and her powerlessness, which is interesting because it's a much different reaction than we saw in the first 12 chapters of Matthew with the Jewish people. In fact, it's a much different reaction even than Jesus got from the 12. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Jesus walking on the water and then he gets in the boat and then they bowed down and worshiped him, that was two years into his time with them. It took them two years to worship him as the Messiah. It was gonna be another few months before Peter would openly declare that he believed that Jesus was the, the Christ, the son of the living God. The rest of the nation of Israel simply rejected him and wanted to discredit anything he was doing. But even for the 12, it took them two years to get to this place. And this woman, it took about two minutes. Openly declaring that Jesus is everything that he said he was. She says, you are the son of David. She bows down and she worships him. And again, she asks for help. And then Jesus' response is, is really unusual in verse 26. Jesus responded, it, is not, it isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. So he calls her a dog. Uh, I called a girl in high school something similar, and she punched me in the face. So, uh, so, like, so what, what's, what's happening here? Um, so first of all, who are the children? The children that Jesus is referring to is the nation of Israel. 
He just said, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They're the children at the table. If you, if you think about this afternoon when you go home and have lunch, you know, it's going to be you, your spouse, your kids. The family is going to be seated at the table. You wouldn't seat the dogs at the table. Some of you probably do, but, um, but most of us, most of us normal people don't do that. Like the dogs may hang around the table, but they don't have a seat at the table. So what he's saying to her is that the children have the place of prominence at the table. And then he says, he says that you wouldn't take food from your kids and feed your, your animal. Instead, you wouldn't prioritize your animal over your children. But he calls her a dog, which is, which is significant. Again, this is about the disciples. One of the known terms that Jews had for Gentiles is they referred to them as dogs. They saw them as savages, as brutal, as gross, as unthinking, and as unspiritual creatures. And so Jesus is playing into this by using terminology consistent with what they would have known and with what they would have used. And again, this is not so much about the woman. This is about the disciples. Like you can almost picture him looking out of the, the side of, of his eyes, just making sure that they're tracking, that they're listening, that they're, they're processing the conversation. And she responds in verse 27. It says, she replied, that's true, Lord, but even dogs are allowed to eat the scraps that fall beneath their master's table. So if you've, if you've ever had small children, or if you have small children right now and you, and you have animals or you have dogs, uh, we had a beagle that we had for like 12 years. His name was Titus. We put him to sleep about eight years ago. But he was with us all through the early years of our, of our kids. And his favorite time was mealtime. Like he didn't sit at the table. He would sit next to whatever one of our three kids happened to be in the high chair. And he sat there. Why? He didn't, see, he didn't sit next to me. He sat there because he knew he would be fed well by all of the stuff that falls off the the high chair that falls off the, the, the plate of the toddler. Like I remember looking at him and he'd have like spaghetti sauce all over his head and he'd be as happy as, as he could be. And when mealtime ended, it's not like our kids were hungry. Like our kids were well fed, they were full, but our dog was full as well. In fact, it wasn't until we put him to sleep that we bought a dust buster because we never needed to vacuum the kitchen because he cleaned it up. And it was a couple of months after uh, we put him to sleep that I'm like, man, this kitchen is a mess all the time. And Jen was like, yeah, because we don't have Titus anymore. He used to literally just clean the floor. And so he would be well fed as well. And so the point she's making is she's saying, I'm not asking you to take what belongs to the children. But like any other home, like any other family, there is enough to feed the family, but there also seems to always be enough to feed the animals that are hanging around the table. And what she's saying is she's saying to Jesus that Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the son of David. I'm worshiping you. What she's saying to Jesus is, Jesus, there is enough of your grace and mercy to not only impact the nation of Israel, but there's enough of your grace and, mo and mercy for, for someone like me as well. There's enough of your grace and mercy to not just reach Israel. There's enough to reach the world. Titus chapter 2, verse, verse 11 says the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. She's openly declaring that yes, the gospel originated with the Jews, but the gospel doesn't have to stop there. There's enough to go even beyond. And today the God, we know that the gospel originated with the Jews, but it was always anticipated that the Gentiles would be included. You see that all the way back when the nation of Israel began. 
You had Israel, whose name was Jacob, but it was later changed to Israel, and his 12 sons and all of their descendants. That's why in the New Old Testament, a lot of times you'll see Israel referred to as the children of Israel. It's the descendants of the children of the man named Israel. Well, Israel's grandfather was a man named Abraham. God appeared to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and one of the promises he made to Abraham is he said, through you, all nations of the world, all family groups of the world will be blessed. It was a futuristic prophecy. He was talking about the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Messiah, that while he would come through the nation of Israel, it wouldn't be only for the nation of Israel. It would expand beyond. And then in verse 28, Jesus responds to her, and he says, Dear woman, your faith is great. Your request is granted. And her daughter was instantly healed. So it says, your faith is great. Your request is granted. Now, at this point in the story, I think it's important to make a connection. Her faith was great. Her faith in who Jesus was. Not necessarily in what Jesus did. If it was about what Jesus did, she would have worshiped him after he healed her daughter, but here she worships him before. Like before Jesus does anything, she declares that you are not just a prophet, you are not just a humanitarian, you are not just a good man, you are the Messiah, you are the son of David, and I bow down and I worship and I declare that. And Jesus says, your great faith in who I am, which again would have been looking over at the disciples going, for the first two years, we've tried to convince the nation of Israel that I'm everything that this woman in just a few minutes has openly declared that I am. And he says, because of your faith, your request is being granted, your faith in who Jesus is. And so you read a story like this, and the obvious question is like, okay, like, good story. Jesus is awesome. He's powerful. He's healing people. He's doing all of these wonderful miracles. But like, but like, what's the connection point for us? And the, and the connection point for us comes back to the connection point for the disciples. Jesus is teaching the disciples that while the gospel originated with the Jews, it wasn't only for the Jews. He's confronting the, the messed up belief they had that in their minds, the gospel was only for their people. Essentially, the way they thought was reach the Jews and the rest of the world doesn't matter. Like reach the Jews and, and who cares about the Gentiles? In fact, one of the things that said was known uh, about the Jews is that they believed that Gentiles were created by God to fuel the fires of hell. That one of the things that, that was unlawful was for a Jewish woman to help a Gentile woman in childbirth because it would have meant bringing another Gentile into the world. And so Jesus had to change the way they viewed the gospel. He had to change the way they viewed other people. And rather than doing this in an academic classroom and Jesus sitting down and going, okay, here's the, here's the 12 points of why the Gentiles matter. Instead of doing that, he says, boys, pack up the Jeep. We're gonna go and ex you're gonna go and experience this. We're gonna go and do this together. You're gonna see this message of the gospel, this grace and mercy that ex is extending beyond your comfort zone, that is beyond, extending beyond the, the four walls of, of your nation, so to speak. Jesus is teaching them that the mission was always a global mission. Even as he's teaching them, they still don't get it. Like this Gentile woman wasn't the mission. They saw this Gentile woman as a nuisance. The 4,000 hungry people that were fed weren't an opportunity. They were the enemy. And Jesus knew that they were never going to reach the world until he changed the way they viewed it. 
And while it may not look exactly like this today, like I don't remember the last time I sat down and had a conversation with someone about racial tension between Jews and Gentiles. Like, like I don't know that, that's, that I've ever had that conversation. But while it doesn't look exactly the same today, I think the struggle is still the same. The problem you and I have is the problem that they had, that our gospel best fits with people who look like us, who act like us, who believe in value what we be believe in value, who even today who vote like us. Like just stop for a minute and draw a circle around, like do this uh, figuratively, not literally, uh, but draw a circle around your, your closest group of friends. Like right now, who are, the, who are the, you know, six, eight, 10, 12, 15 people that you would say, man, this is, this is, th these are my people. And then start to make some observations. Have you, have you ever noticed in our closest circle of friends, we all tend to look alike? And if we don't look alike, we're at least in alignment with how we view things spiritually, or maybe we're in alignment socially. We all kind of make about the same amount of money and live this similar type of lifestyle. Or today we may not all look alike, but we probably all vote alike. That we've settled for a gospel that we've created that looks and acts just like we do. And, and listen, we're all in on reaching the world. We're all in on reaching people as long as they look like us, act like us, and it's people that we feel comfortable around. We're all about unity as long as everyone thinks the same way that we think. And man, Jesus showed up and he presented a message. He brought a gospel that would reshape the way, not only the first century Jews, and not only the way the disciples would view things, but the way you and I view things today. That the lens through which we look at things are no longer the way we used to look at them, are no longer the way the world wants us to look at them, but they're, they're the lens through which God has given to us. And, and God has given us this, this ability that when we submit to it, has given us the ability to see people the way he sees them. That Jesus came to bring us together from all different walks of life from every race, every place, and every class. And it's the gospel that brings us to a point where people who wouldn't ordinarily associate with each other are now able to walk in unity. Like you see it in certain places around our society today. Like uh, one thing I'm always uh, intrigued by is CrossFit. Um, you know how you can tell someone's in CrossFit? They've told you. Um, so, but, but, uh, but like CrossFitters, but if you've ever been around them, like they're, they're completely different walks of life and you're watching two guys who would never speak to each other doing box, jump, doing box jumps next to each other, catching up on life. There's, there's this sense of, of community, this thing that, is, that has brought them together. And Jesus came to establish something that would bring us together, not just today, not just next month, not just next year, but that would bring us together and would hold us together for all of eternity. And it's only the gospel that can accomplish that. It's only the gospel that could tear down the messed up belief the disciples had about how they viewed the Gentiles. That is only the gospel that could tear that down and build up this, this truth and this belief that the gospel isn't just for the nation of Israel, it's now for everybody. Paul talks about what Christ did in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. He says, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own blood on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separates us. That Jesus 
And his work on the cross is what separates and tears down the walls. It's what brings us together. It's what breaks up the, the hostility that exists between us. And for you and I, 2,000 years later, this disconnect between Jew and Gentile, it's like I, I, like, I don't get it. We don't get it because we're not walking in it. But what other barriers exist in our relationship? Man, in this, in this room at Generation, one of the, two of the most divisive, we're six years old as a church, two of the most divisive seasons internally in this room, in this, in this family, have been when the elections roll around. 2016 and 2020. There are people who call Generation home that haven't spoken to each other since 2016. You go, man, I don't get the Jew and Gentile division, but do you get the political division? Do you, do you get the racial division that exists? Do you get the socioeconomic division that exists where, where some people are too good for other people and so while they would never say it out loud the way they live and the way they function and the people they hang with is to insulate themselves from people who are beneath them? Man, it existed 2,000 years ago and we know it exists today because it's existed for every generation from the fall of man and it will continue to exist until the day that Jesus comes back to fully and finally establish his reign here on this earth. And Paul says we get glimpses of it. We get glimpses of how Christ has brought peace to us, how he has united those that are different and he has brought them together. That in verse 16, together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility toward each other was put to death. Here's the problem I see. Hostility still exists. We just brush it under the carpet. We just, we just won't talk about that. Jesus says, man, I came to bring something and to establish something where you can have hard conversations and you don't have to disagree, but you can still walk together in a spirit of unity because I did the work that openly destroys the hostility that exists between you. Like this, this, is, what, this is what Jesus did. His work on the cross and his work on the cross alone is what creates unity. It's the only thing that's ever going to bring an end to hostility. I remember as a teenager, we used to say, hey, we want peace in the Middle East. The only thing that's ever going to bring peace to the Middle East and anywhere else in this world is going to be the person and the work of Jesus. And so today, what do we believe? Well, we believe, number one, that the gospel puts an end to hostility, that it's nothing else. It's what Jesus did that between any and all of our broken and strained relationship, the gospel can bring an end to hostility. That if both parties will come together in a spirit of humility with open hearts and minds, reconciliation is possible because the gospel is bigger and more powerful than anything that divides us. And this morning, some of you relationally, maybe there's division in your home. Maybe there's division at your job. Wherever it is, if two people will humbly come together, reconciliation is possible because of the gospel. The gospel puts an end to hostility. Second thing I want you to believe is that it's the gospel that makes us one. The only thing that can truly bring us together and hold us together is the gospel. If the gospel is the only thing that can truly bring us together, 
then you can be certain in spite of everything that's spinning around us that it's the gospel and only the gospel that can keep us there. Think back to, uh, to 9-11. For me, again, I remember so well the days that followed. Remember that? Like church services were full. I remember like with no social media, no texting plan. I remember if email, email was maybe a thing then. I remember how much of a thing it was then. And the, the church that I was working at put out a message and said that day we're going to have a service tonight. And the building was full. I remember watching as neighbors who didn't associate with one, with one another were locking arms in solidarity. People from all different walks of life and social standings were volunteering side by side. Our politicians were on the steps of the U.S. Capitol praying and singing God Bless America. That happened in our lifetime. Like we saw that happen. We watched as that played itself out. And for a brief moment in time, there was this sense of unity. That there was something that drew us together. There was something that, that brought us together and it was a beautiful glimpse of what I believe the gospel wants to do. But the problem with what happened 20 years ago and today is that what happened 20 years ago was temporal. Like it was fleeting. It was great while we experienced it, but it seems like just as quickly as we experienced it in a few months as the rawness of the moment died down, all of a sudden the hostility that was there that hadn't been put an end, there hadn't been an end put to it. All of a sudden the hostility began to come back up. The gospel can bring us together and the gospel can keep us together. The unity that Jesus brings is not temporal, it's eternal. It's here today, it's here tomorrow, it's here every day for all of eternity. And regardless of what's spinning around us, Jesus wants to change the way we view others. He wants to change the perspective we have of the gospel. And he wants to allow to bring us together, Jew and the Gentile, the black and the white, the old and the young, the Republican and the Democrat, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, that we would come together in a spirit of unity, knowing that the only thing that can bring us together is unity in the gospel. And if the gospel is the only thing that can bring us together, the gospel is the only thing that can hold us together. Let's pray. I want to read over you some of Jesus' words as I pray. Some of the last things that Jesus said to his disciples. He said in John 17, he said, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. Think about that for a second. For all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's us. Like we believe in Jesus through the message of the disciples. This is in verse 21. I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. So that the world will believe you sent me. 
one of the greatest evidence to a watching world that Jesus is real, that Jesus lived, died, was buried, and rose again to pay for our sins, to reconcile us back to God, is unity. That's what Jesus just said. That's what Jesus just prayed. That we would be one. And if we truly came together, if we truly walked in a spirit of unity, how would it change Clayton? How would it change where you live? How would it change your street? And so Jesus, you prayed for that. And Jesus, we pray for it. In spite of the things that want to pull us apart like the Jews and the Gentiles dealt with long after you ascended into heaven, that we would cling to and hold to the one thing that is true. That you lived, you died, you were buried, and you rose again. The first century church was united around only one principle. And that was the belief that you rose from the dead. May we do the same. It's in your name that I pray it. 